what do we do? What is the acute management of epistaxis and how do I stop the bleeding? Important to understand that about 14% of patients who have bleeds will have recurrent bleeds. The number of interventions that I've got in my category, in my Mm. toolbox, are pressure, firstly, topicalization, thirdly, visualization, lastly, or fourthly, packing, and then lastly, surgical. I'm an unaccredited registrar, just a disclaimer in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not specialist expertise, uh, but I do have a few years of being an unaccredited ENT registrar. Uh, this is my fifth year now, Cool. starting to lose count. Um, but in that role, I cover on call uh, the ward patients, clinics, operating theatre. And in terms of on-call, that's going to see patients in ED that come with epistaxis along with a number of other things, um, as well as inpatients, ward consults, that kind of thing. Sweet. Everyone always says that I'm unaccredited. Is it like a thing you've got a disclaimer, like, hey, I'm not on the program, but I want to be? Or is it a bit like sort of a... Yeah, I yeah. think the, the wannabe is a good <laughs> description. Not in a bad way. I think it's no, good. Yeah. Like it. Well, it's it means that I'm not on a training program. Yeah. Yep. So I'm just saying that as a reflection of my level of cool. expertise. Awesome. Because yep. I think it's important for people to, who listen that registrars spend a lot of time getting on programs because of the high demand mm-hmm. and the years you put in before you're even a consultant is huge. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yep. I like to think of medicine as a really long apprenticeship a very long apprenticeship yeah you don't get paid good till the end (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. i think it's a bit unfair but anyway that's just me yeah Um, i mean it's good experience um different uh programs particularly surgical programs have different requirements in terms of years of experience and unaccredited years are kind of a part of that okay yeah um why ent there's so many different areas you could work in medicine you could come down and hang with us in ED, but you've chosen ENT. Why ENT, first of all? What do you like about ENT? Yeah, ENT is definitely the best surgical <laughs> subspeciality for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. I'll give you three main reasons. Give me three. Hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Not physically. Yeah. Well, um, look, the most important reason, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this doing ED, is that we do airway um Airway things were airway specialists and airway, as you know, is the most important in the ABCs. Don't know what the other Bs and Cs do, but because airway is the only important one. A anyway. Yeah. Um, Which is very cool. I like, you know, part of uh, surgical registrar years are doing on-call and, you know, that can be quite taxing. But ENT emergencies and on-call I find really fascinating because the airway is something that you either have or you don't. Um, and, you know, something that you often have one, one shot on securing but can really make a difference, as I'm sure you've seen, patients mm-hmm. in ED. Yep. Um, airway is really important, upmode is important. Secondly, we get to work with a really uh, cool cohort of patients, yeah. paediatrics. 
true. Which is really cool, making a difference in like young, well kids, uh, their hearing, their learning, sleep and all that stuff's really important. We also get to do um, head and neck oncology, hey. which is really rewarding the other end of the spectrum, more unwell patients, uh, not so positive, but a real privilege to be involved in working with patient in oncology patients. Yeah. Was that three? That's only two. <laughs> the, th- the third one is... You're pushy much? I am. It's going to be a long time. <laughs> it's good. It's good. That <laughs> lets me know that my signposting was clear. It was clear. I was clear. I was ready. I was hanging on every. You're waiting. You're like, where is this going? Um, the third reason why I really like ENT, while it's the coolest subspeciality, uh, is because we get to do a lot of clinical stuff. Um and clinical examination, uh, cleaning kids' ears out, putting cameras in noses to have a look um, is really important of our is a really important part of our uh, clinical examination and uh, diagnosis. Um, actually, physically doing things, yeah, not just sitting down talking to patients, yeah, that's true. getting in there and examining them physically, and that can often lead to a diagnosis in itself. Yeah, mm. and especially now with like the advances in technology you guys are like get to use a little bit of vr you get to use a little bit of like real life camera work like i mean you get to use a bit of like i don't know like cool stuff that's out there equipment yes to examine and there's a bit of finesse to ent like i think yeah ent have all the cool toys they do yep i want uh, those glasses they're kind of cool yeah yep <laughs> all the cool toys and all really spans all of the surgical um techniques as yep. well so open surgery, definitely microscopic surgery, endoscopes, endoscopic surgery. Um, we really have a lot of um, breadth over the, the cool toys and the cool surgical techniques. Love it, mate. Yeah. Um, let's crack in. Um, we found out who you are. A little bit of the anatomy and physiology of the nose and throat or stuff that you thought that was important. Um, run me through some of that sort of stuff. Um, what is important for us to know in terms of the nose and the throat? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about epistaxis. Uh, important to understand the nose and the throat um, are, have small openings to big cavities. Um, so examination is really important. Um, in terms of bleeds, they're cavities that are lined with mucous membrane. Uh, in the nose, uh, you've got the columnar ciliated respiratory epithelium. Um, with cilia there and then in the throat um, you've got the stratified squamous epithelium of the um, respiratory tract as well. So important because these areas being mucous membrane get a lot of blood supply to them um, which is great that we're talking about bleeding. Um, Also I think uh, it's important to think about the anatomy of what the blood supply directly to that area um, I don't know if you want to go into yeah, go all hit of me, that. Man, hit me. Oh, we've got diagrams. I love diagrams. Is this what you do with your teaching patients or teaching this other... This is what I do with my free time. Just draw diagrams. <laughs> Here we go. Run me through. <laughs> um, so in terms of nose anatomy, yes. the main blood supplies from internal carotid, external carotid arteries. Um, and important to think about that because they will anastomose in the front of the nose littles area, which is where is the most common site of epistaxis and nosebleeds. Um, So knowing that you've got a dual blood supply to this, it's also important to understand this when you go into the surgical techniques to control bleeding. 
So less so ED, but more so, you know, when we get called for a complicated bleed that needs to go to theatre, you need to understand that. Okay. Um, and there are three main feeding vessels that are going to supply the nose from the ophthalmic artery coming off the internal carotid system. This will give you your anterior ethmoidal and posterior ethmoidal branches. Um, the maxillary artery and the facial artery will come off the external carotid and supply uh, the sphenopalatine artery, which gives you your posterior nasal and descending palatine branches. Um, and the greater palatine artery will come off the maxillary. And then more anterior, you've got superior label branches coming off the facial. Wow. I know your face is like, I'm going to edit that out. No, what? no, 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 no. It's good. It, it, it's interesting too that shows that there's that much supply to an area that looks external. Yes. And internally those arteries come off some big vessels that are pretty important in the body yes okay i think that's important yeah sure. if you're bleeding yeah. from somewhere i'd like to know where it's coming from yes exactly yeah why and you've i guess the cool thing is you've identified some of the anatomy and the physiology why is it important um to know about the nose and the yeah i think it's really important as i mentioned there the nose and the throat have small openings into large cavities so examination is not shouldn't be cursory mm -hmm. should be quick it's really important to have a good look because, you know, your nostrils are really small opening into a large cavity, as we mentioned, with lots of blood supply there. It's really important that you have a good light source um, to look at this and you take your time okay. in looking at all the different features that are there. Pediatrics and adults, same sort of vibe? Definitely, cool. yeah. yeah. Uh, difficult with kids yep. to get a good look yeah. and to have a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so I think there there's... Two really important lessons. Firstly, good rapport with the kid mm. um, and good engagement, compliance to let them feel comfortable with you to have a look in the nose. Yep. Um, and secondly, knowing the anatomy of what you're looking at okay. uh, so that you can recognise it quickly if you do only get a two or three second look into a mouth yeah. when a kid is screaming I was say, with their mouth look. open. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think other things that, that we need to know and we should talk about in terms of the nose and the throat, uh, important things to look for in taking a history. Uh, you want to think about causes, risk factors, severity of the bleeding, and then also some basic management, when to call your ENT registrar. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to understand what we might do yep. um, and how you know that fits into an escalation plan of your own management to then refer. I like it. Um, and it's important to – I like to talk to the person on the other end of the phone call as well because, like, we'll examine in the ED and then obviously make a phone call to yourself or your colleagues. And also it's important to be able to convey that on the phone with the relevant clinical information that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming some things would alarm you, some things wouldn't. Some yep. things alarm us and not us, but we generally have the shared model in relation to the things that really concern us. Definitely. So in terms of uh, that history taking, things that I want to know on yeah, the other end of the phone call. Like yeah. you're on the phone. Uh, I'm not the registrar, but, you know, someone has seen it in ED. Make mm -hmm. a phone call to yourself. What are the things that you want to know as the ENT reg? Yep. Definitely the things I want to know are how severe is it? Do I need to come in? Mm -hmm. uh, do I need to call theatres on my way in? Mm -hmm. And that's really severity. So... Uh, in terms of severity, when it comes to bleeding, um, important information are the hemodynamics, 
blood pressure, heart rate, uh, particularly with kids. What's their overall appearance? They mm. look flat, lethargic, dehydrated. Um, are they not playing? Uh, another indicator of severity is blood loss. Uh, really important because blood loss is often very poorly estimated and commonly overestimated. Commonly overestimated, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um, they've done, you know, studies looking at uh, various people estimating amount of blood loss mm -hmm. uh, from nurses, patients, their family, doctors. Yep. Um, everyone overestimates. Yep. Very difficult to get an accurate sense of blood loss. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, if you, you know, throw 100 mils onto a T-shirt, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. It looks a lot bigger than what you might think it would look like. Yeah. yeah. Especially if it's happened at home as well because you're getting that information from patients who, um, you know, might not have been able to take a photo or have come in and that's not there to actually quantify. It's like, oh, it was all over the bathroom floor or it was yep. over the bed or it was you know, in the lounge room, on the lounge, you know, that's hard because then yep. you're sort of, you don't know what they've lost before they've come in. You've yep. got to guess. Totally. Pictures yep. are always very helpful. Yep. Um, yeah. So if patients have taken photos, something that we definitely want to see and do look at. Other things I want to get over the phone. So definitely severity. Um, what's the basic management that you've done? Also want to get a sense of what are the potential causes and risk factors for this patient. So also the patient's past medical history, medication history, is there any significant family history as well? Um, but also to understand the frequency of the bleeds, um, which are all important information that gets me thinking, you know, what kind of bleed is this? Mm. How severe could it potentially bleed? Could it be a herald bleed with a, with a bigger bleed um, to follow? Awesome. Um, and then get some information on basic management that you've done and I'll often offer some advice and get some management started while I'm on the way in. Good. So something's been done for the patient while you're on the way in. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. I like it. Um, so how often do you see epistaxis? Yeah. So epistaxis, if you look at the literature, it'll affect 60% of people at some point in their life, which is quite a lot. It's a lot. That's more than half of people. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we've all experienced or you may have experienced some kind of a nosebleed at some point, um, but that's to varying degree. Um, of people who have um, epistaxis, only 10% will then seek a doctor. So there's a lot of bleeds that are going on that are self-limiting, don't cause people to present. Uh, less than 1% of these patients that are seeing a doctor, GP, ED or a specialist, less than 1% will even need hospitalisation. Important to understand that about 14% of patients who have bleeds will have recurrent bleeds. Okay. Of ED visits, epistaxis in the literature is about half a percent of all ED visits, which is quite a lot. Mm. So you would expect, you know, probably a dozen patients yeah, yeah. to your ED with a nosebleed, I don't know, in a yeah, week. That's exactly right. Right. Um, I think I probably get called for epistaxis probably about two, three times a week. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you're thinking about that, why does the epistaxis occur? Yeah, there are a number of causes for epistaxis. I would 
divide them into local and systemic causes. Mm -hmm. But most of them for a third category would be idiopathic without any obvious cause. Um, The ones that, you know, that less than 1% that need hospitalisation or the 10% that seek a doctor are going to be in the local systemic causes. We're looking for things to treat them at least. Uh, So in terms of local causes, there's a number here, trauma, inflammatory causes, post-operative, tumours, AV malformations, uh, structural uh, problems in the nose such as a septal deviation uh, and local irritation from nasally administered drugs. Like cocaine? Yes. Yep. Yep. Party drugs. Lay off the coke. Yes, not good at all for nosebleeds, essential to ask about because it's really common Mm. and obviously a reversible cause. In terms of systemic causes, a number here, again, uh, vascular causes including hereditary uh, hemorrhagic telangiectasia, hematological causes, bleeding disorders, uh, those kind of things, alcohols associated with nosebleeds as well, being on blood thinners, having hypertension as well nice there's some interesting ones there hey like i haven't heard of the vascular one before yeah so hht can be a a common cause of recurrent nosebleeds really difficult to manage nosebleeds as well ones that are that we see as ent's quite commonly yeah okay cool and trauma, obviously. Do you, do you see more trauma than more than likely than the others? It is a common cause. Yep. So trauma can be your MVA traumas yep. coming in with a nasal fracture. Yep. Most patients who have a nasal fracture will have nosebleeds at the same time. Um, and that's often, for me, a sign that there has been a significant nasal fracture. Mm-hmm. Um, but also local trauma, yep. specifically local digital trauma, uh, you know, young people, but also older people picking their noses. I was going to say, yeah. Is it yep. Trimming nose hairs. Trimming nose That's a good one. Yep. With the squirrely thing. Yep. Really common in patients who have allergic rhinitis to just have a really dry nose. Yeah. Or an itchy nose, really, that will get the fingers up there and, and cause digital trauma. And then you get this cycle of like a dry scab yep. in the nose. That just keeps bleeding. Yep. And like dry scabs everywhere else, once you pull it off, it's going to bleed. Yeah, 100%. There you go. Keep your fingers out of your nose, lay off the cocaine. And you can't help with the rest, maybe stay off the alcohol. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So risk factors, you've mentioned some of the risk factors. Um, Bleeding disorders, age. um, Definitely. So we see a clustering of epistaxis in young people, less than 10 years old. And then in older people, 70 to 79 years old in that eighth decade of their life. Um, It's questionable whether there is a male preponderance for epistaxis. Mm. Some of the literature reflects this. Some of the literature shows that it's um, equivocal in the genders um, or of equal incidence in males and females. There is also an association of hypertension, hypertension with epistaxis. Uh, varying degrees of incidence in the literature as well but it's certainly something that we see quite commonly and i think that's because um, the hypertension isn't causing the bleeds but it means that when you have a bleed um, the higher blood pressure makes it harder to To control harder to stop and then if you've got a dry scab there as well and hypertension it can make it hard to um, heal and to control and why under 10 year olds like is it just because 
they have smaller nose structures or is it just so with younger kids i think you know there are a number of those um local causes yeah yeah, that will cause it particularly digital trauma but also allergic rhinitis inflammatory conditions in the nose as a clinician when are you concerned um in terms of you mentioned before about a herald bleed or you mentioned about bleeding and systemic some sort of things going on definitely so i'd be concerned about a severe bleed but also looking out for red flags that um, will point to me or trigger to me, looking out for red flags that will trigger to me that this might become a more serious bleed. Uh, So as you mentioned, that herald bleed or small frequent bleeds um, or patient who's coming in with anemia with no obvious big bleed, um, those kind of subtle signs... uh, or other history or clinical findings that can suggest to me that it's a severe bleed, be a patient that's required a blood transfusion, definitely a patient with unstable hemodynamics, uh, hypotension, um, but also insidious tachycardia, Mm -hmm. even with a normal blood pressure, that can often be a sign of ongoing volume loss. and a patient who might have other airway issues because any bleeding, nose or the throat, it's all connected to the airway, the most important part here. Um, (laughs) So something that might, uh, you know, point out to me that we might have issues securing the airway here for this patient or the patient might have problems protecting their own airway if they're having a big bleed and i find that they bleed down the nose and they start coughing it up or spitting it up into a your vomit bag and then suddenly you're looking in their mouth and there's blood everywhere yeah and you're like oh is it i mean you know we're assuming it's from the nose but we still can't you know is there another bleed somewhere else that's further back and then if they cough it up it seems a little bit more like you know there's a lot going on yeah yes. definitely yep. i think um when you're there in ed in resus you know, they're coughing up blood, blood everywhere, as you said. You look in the nose, there's blood. The throat, there's blood. Looks mm. like a horror film. Yeah, it does. Often it's just a horror scene. There's blood yeah. on the curtain. Yeah, it does. You're almost going, what is going on here? Where, yep. is it, well, where is the bleeding coming from? I think that's why it's important to exam, examine, like you said. Yeah, definitely. Yep. And important to, you know, do everything you can to try and put the patient at ease mm. um, to, you know, control or optimize those factors their heart rate their blood pressure that it's not just what you're seeing isn't just a reflection of their anxiety so um this is something that ed are really good at getting towels or cleaning things away really quickly having a vomit bag so the patient can spit the blood out into that so they're not constantly looking at it on white towels Um, reassuring them that they're somewhere safe, um, getting them to sit upright so that they can protect their airway. Um, But I think reassuring a patient in ED when that's going on is really important. And then you can de-escalate, you know, then you'll get there to be able to get a better history, a better examination. You know, you'll feel more confident where the patient is at in terms of their hemodynamics. and Staying calm, eh? I liked how Vina was talking about all the things that we do do well 
in ED um, when we can reassure patients that we're with them and that we can help them during what could be a really, really scary time for them. I love how she was sort of mentioning that, you know, there's different ways to approach things, but sometimes doing the small things well can mean a lot for our patients. It can mean heaps when we are able to sort of look at situations and comfort our patients uh, and make them feel like we're in control. Um, yeah, sometimes it's just the small little things that can make a huge difference for our patient's journey. Anyway, back into the podcast um, where Veen is going to run us through some more stuff on epistaxis. We've been waiting for it. Like, how do we stop the bleeding? There's so many remedies out there, you know, holding the nose, applying cold compresses, like doing different things. Yeah. Um, what do we do? What is the acute management of epistaxis and how do I stop the bleeding? Yeah, I think it's really important to know uh, two main things here that you do have a lot of interventions and things that you can do and to think when you have a patient come in with epistaxis that you've actually got a toolkit of things to do. Um, One of the frustrating things can often be um, that EDs aren't stocked very well with the range of things that you can have that you can use rather for an epistaxis. Um, and I think there is a lot of scope before you get to a heavy duty nasal pack, like mm. a rapid rhino. Yeah, yep. So I think it's important to think of it as a toolkit and there will be a lot of things in there. We'll put a lot of things in your toolkit okay. today. Awesome, I'm ready. Um, I also, the second thing is I think of epistaxis management either as a ladder um, or as, you know, two parallel things that you can do. Um, that we're moving in a direction, we're not just doing pressure and then putting in a pack. So try to think of uh, epistaxis acute management as a ladder, as an exercise in continual resus and intervention. We're constantly doing resuscitation, moving up the ladder, and the rungs on the ladder are each of the interventions that you're going to do. Love it. Okay, and you want to do each intervention, give it some time, at least 15 minutes to see if it's going to work. Your patients coming to ED um, are coming because their epistaxis is not going to stop after five minutes of pinching the nose. They've already tried that. (laughs) Each intervention you need to give a good amount of time before you move on to the next. And I think there's a lot of things, at least in my toolkit, that I think about when I see a patient with epistaxis. So the first intervention that, well, the number of interventions that I've got in my category, in my Mm. toolbox, are pressure, firstly, topicalization, thirdly, visualization, lastly, well, fourthly, packing, and then lastly, surgical. Okay. Okay. So you'll concentrate on those four main ones in ED, pressure, topicalization, visualization, and packing. Love it. It's a lot of things, a lot of categories already. At the same time, while this is going on, you'll be doing your resus, particularly when you're waiting. I've done one intervention. I've got 15 minutes to give this one a good go. Mm -hmm. At this meantime, I can be putting in a drip, checking blood pressure, all of those resus tasks that Idi are really good at. So in terms of pressure, we're pinching the nostrils closed. Um, Where? Right at the tip of the nose. So you're going to be blocking your nose 
So like you this. sound like this. I sound like this. Exactly. Perfect. Then you're doing it properly. Okay. If you don't sound like this, you're not doing it properly. Okay. So that sounds like this. That's not right. <laughs> yep, All definitely. Right. Not too far up? No, not I'm on no, the bone. I notice a lot of patients tend to grab it quite high. Yeah. Yeah, really common misconception yep. of first aid for nosebleeds cool. is to pinch up high. Yep. Um, you need to pinch the soft part of the nose. Yep. As I said earlier, the nose nostrils vessels. are a really small opening to a big cavity. Mm-hmm. Um, and principles of applying pressure, tamponade for all bleeding yep. are, um, you know, getting pressure. Here we've got a whole cavity. Mm. Um, we need to increase the pressure in that whole cavity to yep. stop the bleeding. You don't know where the bleeding's coming from. If you can, um, you know, block the entrance to that cavity, yep. then you can help stop bleeding um it's also really effective because most of the bleeding occurs in the front of the nose where all those blood vessels will anastomose uh, called little's area or kisselbacks plexus there you go yeah so you want to pinch right on the nostrils blocking the nose Um, and you want to put a reliable method on that's not going to lose pressure yeah do you recommend so, the patient doing it or do you recommend someone else doing it? Like, what are your thoughts? I think it depends on the patient, patient. Yeah, cool. how anxious they, they are, yeah. uh, their ability to do it. Properly, yeah. Yeah. Um, in a lot of cases, getting the patient to do those things themselves is really good. Yeah. Uh, because, um, you know, they're not going to hurt themselves. Yeah. They might feel more comfortable doing that. They may also be, you know, more invested yeah, in yeah. stopping the bleeding. And they're also learning that next time this happens, I know I can How apply a first it. aid technique yeah. that's going to work next time yep. or hopefully work. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, in some cases, I think probably in most cases with epistaxis, it's probably best the patient doesn't do it if yep. they're coming into ED. Yep. They've also probably tried doing that at it's home themselves. Working, yeah. Um, it is hard in ED to find someone to stand there for 15 minutes yeah, pinching the nose. The nose. Yep. Um, and also having someone do it is less reliable. At some point, you'll need to fidget and move yep. and you'll um, take Can't off some that of that seal. pressure yep. and tamponade. So um, interesting, you know, there's interesting ways of doing this that people have done them. They all look pretty silly, yeah. but that's how you get it done. Cool. Um, so you can get nasal clips that you can buy. Like a peg on the nose. Like a peg on the nose. Okay. A peg on the nose is also good. Um, I've seen people in ED make nasal pegs out of tongue depressors. Yep, yep, yep. um, I have to. Like with a band on the end. They're all effective. Leave them on for 15 minutes, put a timer on so that you're not going to leave them on for an inordinate amount of time. Yep, like it. There are risks of pressure necrosis to the skin themselves. Yep. Um, so you want it on for an adequate amount of time, but not too much time. Sweet. So number one of that pressure, 15 minutes to the nostrils. Yep. Should sound like you're blocked up. Yes. Cool. Like it. Next, topicalization. Uh, yeah, topicalization, a number of things you can do here. The most basic is ice. Mm-hmm. So ice on the back of the neck, ice on the top of the mouth, on the palate, okay. which is the bottom, bottom of the nose. Yep. And you're going to be constricting those palatine and labial arteries as well. So that's quite effective. Um, And also gives the patient something to do. Sucking on ice will help calm them down as well. 
you know, pharmaceutical things that we can put topically. Yes. So decongestants mainly, that's logicin, drixine, Sudafed spray, all these formulations of oxymetazoline, uh, that's a vasoconstrictor, um, and also cofenalcaine. Cofenalcaine contains uh, lignocaine as well as phenylephrine. Um, you have to be quite careful in this because the phenylephrine um, as well as the lignocaine can have quite a high, you know, they can reach a toxic dose mm. or a dangerous dose really quite quickly. Mm. So you need to be careful in dosing with these. You can get um, cardiac uh, side effects yeah. from low doses with that. Um, other topical pharmaceutical agents, tranexamic acid, yep. Uh, adrenaline, such as one in 10,000 adrenaline. And then there are um, things that are more like foams or gels, okay. flow seal, surgy flow, purigen, yep. hemostatic agents uh, that are topical pharmaceutical medications. Okay. Definitely I've seen TXA used a fair bit. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, sweet. Now um, you've gone through some topicalization, visualization. Yeah, I think it's really important to have a really good light source. Have a look in the nose, see if you can see where the bleeding is coming from. Helpful to have a sucker while you're doing this. Mm -hmm. um, you'll get a stream of blood. Uh, you can suction up that stream to see where the origin of it, where it Just is, where it's coming little, from. Little follow, like a small little catheter. Yeah. Yep. So best would be a nasal sucker. Yep. It's nice and small. Yep to get into the nose, so like an 8 French or a 10 French sucker. Yeah. Um, hard to find in ED yeah. though, but commonly in ED you might find a Y-suction catheter yeah. um, or even just the Yanka sucker. Cool. And, I mean, you only want to put something up there where you can see the end of it. Yeah, okay. So it's really going to depend on what your ED has, yeah. what equipment you have, um, and particularly what kind of light you have. Yeah, that's important, eh? Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to put a small sucker up there, you need to be able to see the end of it. Okay. You can't just put it up there blindly. You're going to cause more trauma and bleeding. Yep. So work with the equipment that you've got. So moving on to packing, yep. there are a number of things here to think about. I, I divide them into absorbable and non-absorbable packing. Mm -hmm. um, and so your absorbable packing are, include things that are hemostatic as well as being absorbable. And, and some of them even provide some tamponade and some pressure. Cool. So Surgicel, Surgicel Fibrilla, Nasopore are common absorbable packings that I would use. Mm -hmm. um, Surgicel comes in a gauze as well as a more fluffy Fibrilla um, texture, yeah. type texture. Yeah. Um, and the gauze is really good for laying on the whole of the nasal, nasal septum mm -hmm. where the bleeding's coming from. It's a little bit hemostatic. And it will stay there for some time uh, while the bleeding and everything heals underneath. Um, Nasopore is almost like a cotton wool or really marshmallow type substance. Okay. So it's a bit squishy to get in the nose and it comes in eight centimetre length, which is exactly the length of the nasal mm. cavity. Hey. So once you get it in, it gives you really good security for the whole nasal cavity and the bleeding. Mm. The absorbable stuff is super beneficial because you can send a patient home with it. Ah. Um, and the American guidelines have uh, really suggested as a strong recommendation, absorbable packing 
for um, patients that have bleeding on blood thinners, yeah. on NOACs, on aspirin, clopidogrel, uh, because as opposed to the non-absorbable things that w- you need to take out, this one you can leave in. Awesome. The non-absorbable things when you take them out can often cause Most trauma yeah. when you take them out just by ripping the scab off yep. or just scratching somewhere else on the nasal mucosa and causing another area of trauma and bleeding. How long does it take to dissolve? Uh, so they probably take about a week to dissolve okay. on average. Yep. Some of them will take longer than others. Yep. Um, the nasopore, those ones that provide a little bit of tamponade pressure, take up a bit of space. Um, and if they become quite annoying, uh, I often tell patients to get a saline spray and that'll help dissolve it a little bit quicker yep. as opposed to getting your fingers yeah. in there and pulling it out, yep. adding to the digital trauma. There are a number of non-absorbable packings. The ones that I probably see most frequently are the Rapid Rhino. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, they can be really handy. They're very good at stopping bleeding, very easy to use. Um, but we do see a lot of them. Uh, I think it's important to understand that there are other things that you can use mm-hmm. because each of these things will have advantages and disadvantages. Um, just to talk about the rapid rhino first. Mm. Uh, so it's pretty much a nasal tampon. It's got a uh, gel film around it that you can activate to form a nice smooth gel for easy insertion mm-hmm. by adding water to it. Uh, I'll often add one of those topical uh, medications around like it. TXA okay. or one in 10,000 adrenaline. Um, or decongestant spray into it to give you a little bit of something extra Okay. when you put it in. Um, and then once it's in, if that's not controlling your bleeding alone, because it is a significant size pack on its yeah. own. It's like you can get yeah, 5.5 centimetres, 8 centimetres. Um, they can be quite big. And as you imagine, compared to the size of your nostril, they're going to cause some tamponade on their own. So I'll often put that in weight do the pressure, pinch, but that topicalization, uh, give it some time to work before thinking of putting in some air into it. Okay. So the balloon on the rapid rhino can take more than 20 mils yeah, of air, exactly. 20 to 40 mils of air. If you've had a play with it, it's quite a lot. It's a lot. Eh? In your nose. Yep. Yep. Do you recommend just starting with 20? I recommend starting with two mils at a time. Oh, okay, well, okay. Yeah, yeah, go really slow because it's uh, quite big and quite traumatic so your bleeding's often just going to be coming from one point on the nasal septum mm-hmm. um and the nasal septum goes back you know like six seven wow. centimeters in the nose and we're looking at one little blood vessel yeah, on that okay. whole thing once you start putting that air into the pack the whole thing will blow up and it can cause pressure and trauma to the rest of the nasal mucosa that's all intact and not bleeding have you seen them use less uh, rapid runners or you still see them used just as much as they were before? Uh, I think probably a little bit less. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they are still used quite frequently. Cool. Um, and I think, you know, when you understand that it can cause a lot of trauma to the nose, think of those other things in your tool, toolkit before you use it. Um, put in the air sparingly, give it a good amount of time cool. before you put a little bit more in. They're also really quite painful and uncomfortable for patients. They block off the sinuses into the nose. It feels like you have sinusitis, that pain pressure in the nose, because that's literally what it is. The nose looks looks so big. It looks like 
the dem is an ad, you know, like it's a huge yes. risk. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of pressure yep. and you've got to make sure that you put it in properly past the nostril. If it's spreading the nostril out, it's not, not in far, far enough. enough. Yep. Yep. And it can cause uh, pressure necrosis on the skin of the notch nostril, um, giving you a Voldemort nose, which no one wants. No, no one wants a Voldemort nose. Um, and that, should they stay in for a certain period of time? Do you recommend um, once yeah. the, the rapid runner's in? It depends on the other contributing factors yep. to the bleeding. Cool. So if we've got a hematological issue or blood thinners on board, that means you're not going to clot normally. Um, the rapid rhino is simply pressure tamponade while your body heals cool. the under, underlying cause of the bleeding. So if you've got hypertension on top of it, you might need to leave it until that's controlled. Um, if you've got a blood thinner, it might take some time to wash out of the system. Um, as a general rule, I wouldn't leave a um, rapid rhino in for any longer than 24 hours cool. because it will cause mm. pressure necrosis on the inside of the nose, the mucosa and the cartilage of so. the septum awesome. um, and can lead to septal perforations because of that. Mm. Um, typically in ED, um, they'll be used and just stay in for you know, two hours or four hours and be deflated and taken out. And I think that's a really safe amount of time, yeah, two to four hours. The ones that need to stay in for longer than two hours or four hours should be admitted, should be under ENT so that you've got someone monitoring the septum and for signs of necrosis of the skin or the mucosa. Interesting. Um, you did talk about posterior bleeds. Yes. How do you control a posterior bleed? Yep. You know? A common call that I get from ED is, I want you to come and see this epistaxis. I'm really worried it's a posterior bleed. Um, I think it's important to um, understand why and is that really important. I don't think whether it's a posterior or anterior bleed should change your acute management. Mm. Um, posterior bleeds are actually really quite uncommon most bleeds are anterior posterior bleeds do occur uh, it's important to know about them because they can be difficult to control it's not the one that you can just see in the front of the nose cauterize or control with the pressure on the front of the nose however i think your management approach should be the same okay. the nasal cavity as i mentioned before is a big cavity cavity with a small opening your goal in controlling the bleeding should be to increase the pressure in that cavity and you can do that by blocking off the small opening in the front yep. or the big opening in the back. And you're always going to start by blocking off the small opening right. in the front. Yep. Um, and even if it's a posterior bleed, it will be controlled by that. Um, commonly, people will get distracted by this is a posterior bleed. None of my interventions are going to help because it's a posterior bleed. Mm. And they'll stop doing those, those things. But you still need to do all those things because anatomically, it's all in the same cavity. Um, anything you do to that cavity to increase the pressure tamponade will help. Um, and also you need to keep in mind that all anterior bleeds will eventually look as though they are posterior bleeds yeah. because if you've blocked off the front of the nasal cavity, it's going to go out the posterior nasal cavity. Yeah. It's going to be going down the back of the throat. As you mentioned earlier, you know that patient who's bleeding out the front of the mm. nose, now they're coughing, now they're bleeding out the back of the nose. Is it a posterior bleed? Don't know. Yeah. It doesn't matter so much. We've still got to treat it the same way. Still got to resuscitate them and do intervention at the same time. I like how you said climb up the ladder. You still got to climb up the rungs ladder. You can't expect to get to the top if you haven't climbed the rungs. So I like your style on that one. 
Um, you've run us through all the mainstay therapies for epistaxis. Um, when to call it. Can you remember a patient you've looked after who's had epistaxis? Or when were you worried? When were you concerned? Run me through something, that, like a case that you had. Okay. A, a patient we recently had mm. on the ward admitted with epistaxis. Um, it was an elderly man who was on a NOAC, on a Pixaban, mm-hmm. um, and had had a number of recurrent bleeds over the past few weeks. Um, this type of bleeding can be quite concerning because with the blood thinner on board, it makes my surgical options quite limited. Mm. And also the non-absorbable packings, you know, can become complicated when you come to take them out. Patients still um, got a bleeding mm. tendency. Yep that you need to be aware of. I think it's really important with these patients to involve other teams, cardiology, so that they can speak to the patient about stroke risk if we need to stop the blood thinner. Mm. Um, but this patient unfortunately had gone up that ladder of intervention. Um, NED ended up with a pack in the nose, was admitted to the ward. Um, and, you know, the packs can be really quite uh, painful. Mm. They can cause um, toxic shock syndrome on the ward. This patient developed tachycardia and a fever, um, which is, you know, one of the first signs of toxic shock syndrome. (laughs) Toxic shock syndrome. Um, And they can get a staph sepsis from this. So it's important that when you put a pack in, patients have antibiotic cover. Mm. Nothing's ever just simple. This is a patient. They've just got one problem. I think that our comorbidities mean that our patient has, even if they come in with one problem, if you alter any of their medications, you're going to have multiple problems technically. Yep. You're going to have yeah. some issues. You're going to have blood pressure control problems. You're going to have problems with infections. You're going to have, yep. you know, I think it's important to look at patients like that. Yeah, definitely. All of your interventions may have uh, mm. risks or side effects associated with them. Mm. Um, you need to think about the potential harms that you can cause in doing things. So it's important to know everything that's in your toolkit, what are the benefits, what are the pros and cons of this, which is going to be best for this patient. I like it. Um, where would people go to for resources when you we want to look at stuff? Where do you go to to find all your information in relation to epistaxis? Yeah, so there are some good guidelines out there. I mentioned the American Academy have good guidelines for epistaxis, also local guidelines uh, in Australia itself. Um, that would be my main go-to. Um, there are lots of uh, literature reviews out there on epistaxis. There's, you know, it's something that's really quite common, so there is a lot of information. There are Cochrane reviews awesome. as well, up-to-date, BMJ, best practice, really helpful. Yep. But I think also really important to check your ED storeroom, see what they have. Yeah. Do you have a good headlight there that you can look into the nose? Is there a nose sucker is it something that you're comfortable using? Um, what absorbable, non-absorbable stuff do you have? Is there things that you can get from the operating theatre? What are your local resources? And I think the cool thing is if you're ever in an ED and you see an ENT, Reg, say hello. Watch them exam- examine a patient because I think what we talked about earlier is that they are generally really good at doing their physical examinations and they focus on assessing the patient. And I think it's really important. I also see them ask time and time again what did you see and ask the clinician who's examined before to get a bit of collateral but also to you know confirm or see something different on their exam um so i think it's important to watch them when they examine patients um and to look at some tricks and tips in relation to assessing patients um 
Dude, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'll put in the show notes uh, any access to articles so people can click those links and read those articles. Um, just in general, how do you stay positive? How do you, you know, you work in, as an ENT, you, you, you know, that page has been off multiple times. You've received at least three phone calls during this podcast about patience, which just shows that your specialty is a high demand specialty that people require your input. How do you keep it going? Yeah, I think it's a real privilege um, to, you know, be able to work with patients, to be a doctor, see patients when they're unwell and make a difference. That's a real privilege. Um, also having, you know, things to look forward to after work. Yeah. Really important. Um, <laughs> and having great people to work with. I yeah, think, cool. you know, um, probably the most beneficial thing um, that I find at work is, you know, connecting with people, mm. having a laugh with people, having a positive time because of your positive interactions with your colleagues. Um, if you smile at people, they often smile back. Yeah, if you're positive with people, you'll get that um, positivity back and you'll feel included And in that. Yeah, that really makes coming to work fun. Respect, I like it. Which <laughs> reminds me, you got to go, you got dinner on. Um, peace out. You! Hey guys, I hope you liked the episode. I thought it was awesome getting to chat with Vina. She's actually going to come back on the podcast and talk a little bit about post-ontolectomy bleeds in a few weeks. So get ready to hear that second um, episode. Um, I hope you liked it. There's so much we can learn and we can take out of the episode as clinicians about epistaxis. Uh, And a cool thing I learned was just about that tool belt, about having things in that step ladder uh, and that we can follow that process so that we give our patients the best chance to stop the bleeding. Anyway, new episodes are coming soon. I'm chatting to Simon um, about neurosurgical issues, um, especially spinal cord injury. So be ready for that next week. You. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darabal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Why don't you be like, but what would you use for a posterior bleed? But what would you use for a posterior bleed? <laughs> <laughs>